You're listening to The Reality Show, hosted by Dan Rutstein, president of immersive tech company, Laduma. Each episode delves deep into the power and potential of immersive technology in business, entertainment, or sport, now and in the future. Welcome back to The Reality Show and another of our social distancing specials. <laughs> and this one, we have a guest, a man I've known for a few years. I think international man of mystery is probably not an appropriate way to describe a lawyer. <laughs> but um, <laughs> welcome to the show, James Uri. <laughs> Thank you very much for having me, Dan. Um, it's been a pleasure to uh, know you for some years. Equal man of international mystery that you are. Yeah. And... Um, I, I have to say a big thank you to Laduma and to giving giving us a bit of an opportunity to talk about some interesting things. So our relationship started when I was a diplomat and you were a lawyer and we were looking at tech companies and international boundaries and how companies can explain and expand and so on. We're both in very different jobs now. Well, you're still doing a bit of that, but you are you're launching a new company around training. So tell us about Osiris and what they're doing. Thank you very much indeed, Dan. Um, so Osiris is really, Dan, trying to tackle, I think, an endemic problem sort of in enterprise and business generally, which is um, corporate training. I mean, when we think about corporate training, we think about PowerPoint, <laughs> which I think... Uh, uh, pre or post COVID is pretty um, pretty interesting um, and never fills people with um, enthusiasm or, or joy. And so, as you're very familiar with, along came immersion and techniques for immersion. And so, we basically blended together the idea of how could we reach people, you know, and to reach people at, from the heart first and how could we do that with immersive tools so virtual reality augmented reality etc and in approaching it we were less interested actually in what we consider to be hard skills so how do you do something you know and how do you do it better in an in an immersive simulation and much more wanted to focus on soft skills to have so let's talk about you know this this business was formulated well before covid came along and changed everything so i want to talk about the sort of post-covid world and delivery of corporate training in a more remote setting let's actually just talk about that principle first in terms of what do you mean by soft skills and why now is that so important by now i mean the last couple of years well, that's an that's an excellent question. Actually, um, I, I think the best way to think about this is that, in some senses, technology and technical skills they sort of take care of themselves nowadays, and so soft skills, human capability, if you will. Um, if you begin to unpack it, you're talking about 
creativity. You're talking about um, agility. Uh, you're talking about resilience. And, and, and these soft skills have, have really been recognized, I would say particularly, Dan, yes, in the last couple of years. So last September, IBM, in fact, uh, did a really interesting analysis around looking at where retraining needed to happen within enterprise. Now, the findings are just extraordinary, Dan, because it's very counterintuitive what I'm about to say. Because what they said, having looked at all these enterprises, was what is it to train somebody in 2014 in a new skill, hard or soft for a moment? And they said, it takes three days. Today, in 2018, it takes 36 days. Interesting. And what was interesting from this report is you then ask yourself, well, why? And it's because the hierarchy of skills that enterprises now need has completely shifted. So it shifted away from operational, technical, accounting, you know, type technical skills to ethics, integrity, and, and, and agility and prioritization. And what was really interesting about the report was it, it, it fundamentally said, look, there really aren't a lot of solutions out there to train people at scale in this new hierarchy of skill sets. You know, how do you really train people at scale in trust, in respect, in how you behave? And that's really where from our sort of hypothesis, which remains to be seen if it's going to be proven, that we felt there was a role for immersion. So I think the question is, so how do you at scale train people in those soft skills like ethics and so on? And why is immersion so important for that? Well, um, excellent again question, um, Dan. I mean, I think, first of all, we've got to sort of pan back a little bit and talk about immersion as a tool for achieving better outcomes from a neuroscience psychological point of view and you'll be very familiar with this um, with your great work at Leduma that you know without getting very statistical there's a lot of research out there about how with a VR headset you are immersed you are retaining you are acting upon, you are finding more joyful the general experience and therefore translated into a training soft skills environment, you're, you're getting much greater resonance with, with the individual, uh, much more engagement, much more, um, more effective training outcomes. If you go down another level, which is this is a simulated environment. I mean, this is the joy of altered reality, you know, that as we get closer to building environments that are more representative of the physical world, you get to have something which I think really is the beginnings of this journey of connectivity with the technology, which is autonomy. 
that you can go into this experience and really experiment and and have free will, which is very important to us. So the Asuras methodology is built around authenticity. You know, we felt that an approach that had too much theater was not for us. And actually, what we needed was credibility and authenticity and interactivity that brought some of these concepts of how do I behave appropriately in this particular situation to sort of life. So it's it's rather exciting because you see people go into the experience, experiment, get things wrong, uh, perhaps be inappropriate, but then come out of that experience and then be able to go back into it again, possibly from a different perspective, mm-hmm. uh, and have you know a, a true sort of learning learning simulation in these very sort of delicate soft skills. I think the other thing to say is perspective. You know, um, this technology drives a lot of empathy. And so your perspective, so let's bring it down to a very real situation. Um, You are, for example, we have an experience that deals with how do you improve people's behavior in areas where there's often sexual harassment. And in this case, you know, you would have, say, a CEO sitting behind a desk. You would have a female interviewee. And then I think critically, somebody who is perhaps there as somebody observing the interview, you know, on behalf of the company, male or female. And the ability to go into these environments where actually you're playing the female interviewee as a man or you're the female interviewee participant in the experience being the CEO. Or in fact, either of you is the onlooker there taking a note, just observing the interview. And do you or do you not intervene in the experience? I mean, these are very delicate, but, but, but simulated environments of behavior that are quite compelling. Obviously, you know, part of the value of VR is this sort of feeling of presence and empathy you get by that you can't get just doing role plays with actors, which is also an an expensive way of doing things and hard to scale. So I can see the the value of that. One thing we've talked about in the show before is how good companies are at understanding how this technology works and how it can be valuable. As you've gone out to speak to these big corporates, Presumably, A, the soft skill stuff is still relatively new, and then B, using the technology is relatively new. How have you found the reception to both the technology and the type of training? Oh, Dan, you really, um, I must admit, on this Friday afternoon, you're hitting me with some good questions here. Um, So, again, let's, um, let's sort of break this down. I mean, at a... At a vision level, you know, what what we're really trying to do is reconnect people. So, you know, our hypothesis is people are very disengaged in the workplace. So we start very much from the premise that within enterprise, there are enterprises that are 
filled really with zealots, for want of a better description. And I describe these as individuals who see the value in the technology, see the value in the purpose, see the value in, um, in, in what the next generation of corporate training could look like. And then on the other extreme, you know, you meet, you know, the, the head of training who may be under huge budgetary constraint. Um, you meet, um, you know, the head of HR who already is dealing with, you know, innumerable issues at, at scale. And so I think um, to answer your question directly, the respect, res, reception to those companies that we deal with is very positive. But then I think you quickly get into how do you distribute this at scale? Mm. And, and, and how do we do this cost effectively? Because ultimately, one wants this training to be equally accessible across an organization. This isn't the kind of C-suite, you know, aren't we lucky because we're C-suite, we get to have the special training. I mean, the, the, the issue here is, can we get rid of corporate retreats and can we make this, you know, available at scale? And I think, I think there's some encouraging things going on. I mean, I think content is, is really complex. I mean, I, I've had the privilege of talking to a number of studios. And I don't think there's any studio, if they put their hand on the heart, that doesn't say there are challenges in creating authenticity in the environment. You know, there are challenges in doing these uh, reasonable budgets in sort of sprints, so agile production, you know, and then um, the, the credibility of the experience. On the hardware side, I, I'm excited, Dan. I mean, I don't know what your view is on this because I'd, I'd value it. I mean, I feel on the hardware side, we've seen this huge push you know, the, the Oculus Quest now untethered, being able to be acquired for, I mean, you probably know, but you know, $350, $400 at least retail price. I would imagine with COVID, you know, there'll be a following wind of, you know, increased investment in hardware. I think the other side is volumetric capture. So, you know, the days of the sound studio are gonna move. And I think, you know, the volumetric capture is going to become mobile, more portable, more cost effective. You know, I think those things will happen. So I think going back to your original question, what companies really need is the easy button. You know, they are dealing with such heavy levels of complexity. And so I think the easy button is, and that's no difference to their ecosystems, which are highly complex, is we need the content on the device, we need the device at a price that is scalable, and we need the content to be sufficiently creditable that it is achieving what you want it to achieve, which is connection, engagement, immersion, action from the individual participants. Um, I'm definitely seeing, as ever, genuine thought leadership from the companies um, you know, in areas like diversity and inclusion, areas like respect. Um, and I think with the whole journey that is happening around sustainability, ESG investment, Larry Fink coming out in BlackRock saying, 
you are not a company we'll invest in unless you've got a purpose. I mean, this whole alignment that needs to go on between the team and the company's vision, again, brings together, you know, the need for some, something that's, that's going to do more than a PowerPoint. Yeah, absolutely. Now, this was all conceived pre-COVID. And even a man with the um, sort of knowledge of international markets and the forward-thinking innovation as you couldn't have predicted a global pandemic. So <laughs> how are you pivoting now? Now, obviously, you were, some of this is about so delivering at scale, which will have meant some level of remote working in order to keep down training costs and so on. What, what does, for your business plan, your business model, what does the post-COVID world look like? And then let's talk about what does the post-COVID world look like more broadly for remote working and so on. Um, well, Dad, I laughed and that was probably a terrible thing to do when you're talking about COVID because, you know, all respect to everybody that's dealing with this on the front line at home and in the hospitals. But I laughed because you're absolutely right. I've absolutely no idea about the future. And what I, what I think is consistent and where I think there's this kind of intangible we're, we're trying to all experience and scratch out at the moment is if you and I were in a room together, Dan, and we were having a pint together, there's something that happens as human beings, you know? And it seems that our trust that exists already is kind of accelerated in a way. I mean, that's how I'd like to put it, you know, like, it's, you know, we're having our pint together now on Zoom, which we're not, but if we were, there's just something missing. So, so my view is that the, the challenge is how are you going to engender trust at scale, you know, with remote working? You know, how do you even, how can you kind of scratch that surface a little bit, even if it's a little bit? And I, I think that's fundamentally what we're trying to do with Osiris, actually, is what we're trying to do is with empathy is, is really to build trust. And you could imagine building trust in a group of 10 to 15 people that are all working remotely. And the way that you could imagine doing it is say, hey, we're gonna, we're gonna sort of work on a subject that probably is a bit uncomfortable for people or, you know, is gonna feel a bit awkward. And there are going to be, you know, moments of interesting conversations. But it's a bit like, I've been reading, I, I'm sure we all have been, you know, the remote working literature that's coming out of Harvard Business Review or wherever it may be. And, and, you know, almost number one on the list is how to run a good Zoom call, you know. And you start with, let's not talk about the birth, the business. How are you doing? Mm. And I feel that, that these softer skill topics really allow human beings to start being vulnerable. And, and, and that's complex to do. You need time and you need... A, a, an ability to go in and out of that experience and talk about it. But I, but I think it's scratching at this sort of challenge we're going to have, which is how do you build at least a biochemical level of trust, a distance, you know, in a team that you're working in. And, 
I also feel that 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 feeling you and I get when we're saying a British pub having a pint is as as you think about well, how far are we into this? Four weeks, you know. I, I, I imagine we're doing this for six months, mm. you know. And it's like psychologically, you know. I don't know about you, but I feel like it's been a year. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so so I think back to your point. I think. There's that aspect. The positive aspect as well is, I think you and I have touched on, Dan, is, you know, this recognition that remote working may be here to stay longer because of environmental impact, productivity, etc. But I think tying it together with Osiris, to me, it's a journey of how do you really touch people at scale, at distance? How do you give them better capability? And I think it starts from the heart. Yeah, I think it's, I remember when I was in my graduate program at the British government, we did lots of training. There was a requirement to the release. I think it was 20 days of, you know, training a year. And there was, there was all these courses we went on. There was one, and I can't remember the real name of it, but it was called the crying course. Um, and I think everyone who ever went on it ended up either crying or making somebody cry as part of the training and you know it wasn't, it wasn't about trying to make people cry obviously it was it was creating that sense of vulnerability and it was a leadership and sort of soft skills course and this was 15 odd years ago so things have moved on since then um but i think we went to an off-site for four days and people didn't cry until the fourth day mm-hmm. so how because there is a they like say there's a biochemical thing there's something about that presence so do you really think that the technologies are good enough and the, the use of content and immersion is good enough to create those, those real feelings that enable you? I'm not saying the aim is to make people cry necessarily, but that's not necessarily a bad place to end up on some of these training courses. Do you really think you can really create it enough with the technology? The, the, the answer is no. I don't think we'll ever replace, you know, the moment you're with your colleagues on that training course together physically. Um, I think that we are getting closer to an environment where you're triggering with immersion, the opportunity to have these conversations and to have them in a very neutral way. You know, the very fact of simulation is that it's an experience. It's you can do lots of right and wrong. Nobody's there to judge. So I feel, Dan, again, with that excellent question is no, but it's, it's a very, you know, it, it's a good way to start building this vulnerability, you know, yeah. um, I, I think, and, and I think we'll see, you know, that challenge of how you merge our world with the virtual world, visually, the credibility of that. Actually, when you start seeing edge computing, you know, obviously there's a huge demand on data processing um, when you're doing this, you know, that's been the battle with tethering and untethering and you know, am I hooked up and wheeling around half a sort of surgical ward? <laughs> you know, the reality of that's not going to work at scale. But I think when we see more capacity being processed much closer to you, 
and um, those sorts of kind of infrastructural advances, and you see the hardware move. I think I, I think the the latency challenges that continue to exist um, in the experiences are going to be markedly improved. You know, mm. to the point that that I think this merger of the what we see in our world and what we are seeing in our virtual world are going to come closer together. And I think the more they do, the more this will become a, a tool that I think will be not just a catalyst to conversation, but, but something that could really move the behavior. Do you think the post COVID world both increases the need for this sort of soft skill? Because now every company even though this stuff is important around bullying, sexual harassment and so on, actually the whole, how are you starting a meeting way of working in this world increases the need for all leaders to have soft skills. So there's a, I guess, an increased demand around this, but also the technology improvements that are being necessitated by all of this means that actually when life begins to return to normal, Actually, sorry, yeah, as we return to normal, companies both need the skills more, but also the technology is going to be better able to deliver the sorts of training you're looking for. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's been haunting us in a, in a, in a bad and a good way. And that, you know, we took stock and sort of stepped back and said, well, rather than looking at theme, themes, you know, that you've touched on, you know, the sexual harassment, the bullying, the diversity, the inclusion, the, you know, the corruption, you know, should we be stepping back and saying, look, the world has shifted on its access, rightly or wrongly, should this be used more as a, a, a tool to engender um, sort of not necessarily higher level themes? And I think, you know, I'm obviously there's every part piece of either of us is kind of opportunistic and strategic, but I don't feel opportunistic about that environment as much as I do strategic about where Osiris is trying to go. And under underneath it all, and it isn't meant as a kind of it sounds very kind of out there, but you know, I really believe fundamentally that every human being can be a leader. You know, and so part of me feels that by going in the entry door where corporates have to have compliance around these themes, you know, it is helping reduce their operational risk that really what we're trying to get out here is not a tick in a compliance box, which is helpful for a business, but it's productivity. Yeah. And so if we can you know, scratch the surface of that. We all feel more comfortable with each other. We're prepared to be more vulnerable with each other. And actually I feel protected more by this organization. Like, you know, the company is sort of, I have a contract with this company that isn't an employment contract. It's like, this is my social contract with the company. And this is a place of security that I think we're getting into, you know, the beginnings of why people behave thanks to these immersive experiences, whether it's in sexual harassment or bullying, in a place where they feel they can have more open dialogue. Yeah. So let's talk about the sort of future of work as a result of what's happened. So 
like so many companies we are pivoting towards how can we use immersive collaboration tools so that people can work more productively and more effectively at a time when there will be more people remote working and fewer people wanting to do intra-office travel or travel to or travel in general um, and you know we're bringing tools using immersion to bring people together in a way that means that they can operate in this new environment and be more productive how different do you think not the next couple of months while we're getting at this but in six months time when maybe some of the stuff has gone away what do you think will have changed about how people travel how people remote work how they think about their teams oh damn <laughs> you know i'm gonna say it again my gosh this is really uh really enlightening um i'm not sure if i've got any authoritative i mean i've got a lot of friends who are millennials and I think they've always had a very nomadic existence. And, and what I mean by that is they see mobility and freedom of choice of where they work almost as sort of part of their architecture of being, you know. My generation, at least I'll speak, you know, I'm 51, um, you know, I think sits in this very strange mix where you know our parents are how could you ever possibly think about not going to an office every day yeah. um, and yet we've grown up not with a computer in our hand but being you know informed about how we can make ourselves mobile and i i think honestly what i think may happen is a lot of people that felt you know, a bit like telemedicine, you know, which I think is a really positive thing that's going on. I could get excited about, and I know I don't want to, but footnote telemedicine, because it's wonderful to see people going, actually, this can work. And okay, we, it's not ideal and we can't achieve everything with it, but we can certainly do a lot of, which is great for the efficiency of the healthcare system longer term, which we're seeing fortunately exposed at this time. But I just wonder, Dan, whether there'll be a lot of my age group probably 10 years younger, you know, who are actually going, this actually can work. You know, I'm not, I, the fear I had of being disconnected, of not being around the water cooler for want of a bland analogy is, is not as bad as I thought. And yes, I miss human beings. And I miss that interaction. So I think people are going, I personally think people are going to go, actually, this can work and it's good for the environment. I don't think I want to live like this all the time, but I'm gonna be a lot more thoughtful about when I do travel, when I do go to the office. And when I go to the office, you know, I'm gonna see Dan and I'm gonna see five of his Ladima colleagues and we'll be in one of your amazing virtual rooms. And, you know, the great news is we'll be able to take one of your virtual rooms back into the, the space that is of the team that we work in, which I think is incredible and very insightful. So, you know, a long-winded way of saying that, that I think that fear that people had it was probably, well, if I'm honest, probably misplaced. Um, 
I wonder also what it's going to do to where people fundamentally choose to live. Mm. Because I think there's huge push that's been happening around the metropolis push, you know, the fact that London will be a metropolis, New York will be a metropolis. I wonder whether there will at least be um, a redistribution of population, which might be a positive thing, mm. you know, that people will go, you know, I'm speaking to you down from, you know, middle of nowhere in Colorado. Now, that's not to say I'm some movie star, I think I'm far from it. But the point is that, that you could see these smaller communities that in some way do need economic development and, and, and regeneration becoming the homes of remote workers, of people who don't have the daily commute grind, but may say, right, in a month, I've got to go to the office for three days. And those will be very meaningful human face-to-face meetings. So it'll be, yeah, I, 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 and, and personally, I mean, everybody's got a view on this. I mean, for what my view is worth, which is not very much, I think there's something very deep that's happened in the psyche here. And I, I certainly subscribe to the view that people, people, it, it isn't, it isn't, we're very good at human beings at being resilient. So kind of that happened last month, let's forget about it, let's move on. I think this is going to have a more profound behavioral effect, really. Yeah. I think that's right. I think, you know, it's, I imagine during the first month of a pandemic is not the time to decide what the future is going to look like, because we're all feeling, you know, we're all isolated at the moment. We are all working in this environment. Um, and a lot of people are under different pressures because of either financial pressures or, um, frankly, having two children running riot around the house. You know, it, it's making home, home working very different from what real home working might be like in three months time when schools are reopened and there is some travel, but equally, I agree that people have seen something different about this sort of thing. So home workers are often mocked in lots of different companies. Now, I know you have worked from home for some time. You know, I live in Los Angeles and my company have got offices in three other cities. Um, so I have as well. But in I've worked for big companies where the person who worked from home is seen as the person who's not doing a real job. Right. And I think that that has shifted because so many people, including the bosses of those types of people, have now just worked from home and realised that everyone's actually getting quite a lot done, even in these extreme circumstances. So is there a version of events where people only go in when they have certain meetings to go to? Do they only travel when they really have to? And I think that hybrid approach is where we're going to end up. And I agree with you around the, the point about the human interaction. So I was talking to somebody yesterday about the potential of using our interactive immersive conference rooms and remote facilities. And he said, look, I will still fly to the other side of the world and take my clients for a dinner and a few glasses of wine, because that's how we do business. But I could also then do the next three meetings with them after that remotely using this technology. So, you know, you can't, you're not going to ever get rid of the human connection, the need for, for those who drink to have a drink together. But it's the, once you've got a level of trust and relationship there, it's that second or third meeting that you could do differently. I think that will be the bit that's the difference. Yeah, I don't know. It's all really, really. And I love, yeah, a couple of points you're making is very true. You know, like what is homework? You know, what's really interesting to me when you're talking about, you know, working from home and, 
the kind of perception that you know it's okay for you and 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 you probably aren't at work anyway and you know i think that's all so so true and yet you know what's the other side that's going to be interesting for me is is the productivity conversation on remote work because in a world where we're not juggling algebra with bunny rabbits with zoom calls or whatever your domestic reality may be at the moment but let's imagine that there is a degree of remote work it becomes interesting to me because i think that the really the the, the threats to homework actually if you homework are isolation um, which we've touched on but actually overwork there is a tendency very much for people so you know bosses who have experienced now being at home and working and and going okay this you know has definite pros and cons but i think we'll find themselves going wow you know i am my productivity has really increased and what i've got to be careful of here is burnout (laughs) and and trying to find that balance um yeah i think that's right it's really interesting because when you're at home and you're working from home under normal circumstances, so pre-COVID, you're always very conscious that, you know, if you nip out for lunch, it looks like you're not working. Well, if you're in the office and you wander down the corridor and talk about football or whatever it is with your colleague for half an hour, no one's thinking that that's terrible behaviour. So the bar is in a different place. And again, it's moved because I think under current working conditions, Obviously, everyone's having to make do in different ways, but I would feel a little bit uncomfortable in a way about calling up a colleague and just having a chat with them for 45 minutes over Zoom on work time, but not specifically about work. While in the office, actually, that's how you build constructive relationships. So it, it, there's, it works in both directions on the productivity point. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I think the great news is, thank Thank you, Zoom. Thank you, Skype. Thanks, our Estonian colleagues. I mean, we've got these tools. And I think, you know, there's a couple of dimensions to them, you know, and then, you know, you know, one is time zones. So I think increasingly now we're working with dispersed teams. So, you know, what's lovely about, I think, when you do have a virtual team is that you will recognize, okay, Dan is on West Coast, you know, our, our, our friend Sarah is on London time and, you know, Manish is on, you know, New Delhi time. And, you know, so you're kind of always running in a kind of cycle, you know, of, of timing. And I think the other, um, you, you know, important thing is transparency. And we've got much better tools now for, you know, transparency of remote work, you know, whether you're using, you know, a Slack product or you're using, you know, you know, a Teams product or, you you know, I think just visibility on output is often, you know, can be the real enemy. If you don't have that, then people presume. So, um, and I'm, I'm excited, I, you know, I'm optimistic. I always am optimistic, Dan, you know, on a lighter note that despite extreme diversity, um, adversity, human beings would really good at creativity in in difficult scenarios and it's not perfect how the world is reacting and there are real fracture lines and collaboration and things and there's been weaknesses shown in systems but i think in the longer term there's so much that will come out of this that will be i hope promotional of collaboration and promotion of 
of of how we you know i'll give you one example of this that really just since it's on the theme of innovation that um a friend of mine does some really great stuff around virtual hackathons and they did one for covid and one of the products that came out was in two days mvp um a a platform that matches retail workers and restaurant workers from employers that that are either furloughed or looking for a job with industries in the service sector where they need you know more drivers for 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 deliveries of takeout or more people to you know pack shopping carts that are going to be collected or you know picking up pharmaceutical drugs and a sort of a matching platform and i thought you know that really just sort of profoundly moved me that in you know all of the chaos that, that that is going on for so many people and worries and fears and stresses you know that that we are able to say oh, how, how do we how do we adapt in this this environment so i'm really optimistic about that piece yeah. Look, um, ending on optimism seems the right thing to do. <laughs> That's me. James, thank you very much for your time. And I think you, know, you and I, we've probably, uh, I think of all the different times and places we've met, I think the place we've met most often is Las Vegas uh, because of the trade shows that we both attended there. So um, I look forward to, at some point to returning to Las Vegas with you. <sighs> And having that drink and having a real human connection with you. Um, but until then, let's keep this virtual. But thank you very much for your time today. And good luck and stay safe. Thanks, man. I really appreciate it. And thanks for the opportunity. And best year and the team at Ledima. Thank you for listening to The Reality Show. If you enjoyed listening, please be sure to subscribe and leave a review. You can also find us on social media at Reality Show Pod. Thank you.